Thank you very much. We're joined by some fantastic contributors who want to address this uh, question today. First of all, Professor Paul Moon from uh, AUT is a prominent historian. Come on up, Paul. Uh, and how many books have you written, Paul? I think. I think he's written about 25 books and so um, is, is a very well-qualified person to speak on the subject. We also have Dr. Michael Johnson from the New Zealand Initiative down in Wellington. Uh, Dr. Ananesh Chaudhry from the University of Auckland is an economist who has voiced some uh, interesting perspectives in terms of the changes in the culture, I think, and we'll get into those shortly. And finally... Uh, Paul Goldsmith, the uh, former tertiary education minister, uh, Nationals List MP in Epson, and their spokesperson for justice. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for joining us this afternoon. Uh, uh, Michael, I know that you're here instead of at your daughter's birthday party, so I think that shows uh, the dedication you have to free speech. I want to um, go back, actually I already had the quote ready to go, so uh, Jacob and I may be playing from the same handbook, but quoting George Orwell at a free speech union uh, AGM is probably part and parcel of what we expect. Uh, he, he said in one of his slides there, a, co a culture of free speech, and Orwell wrote, the point is that the relative freedom which we enjoy depends on public opinion. If large numbers of people are interested in freedom of speech, there will be freedom of speech even if the law forbids it. If public opinion is sluggish, inconvenient, minorities will be persecuted, even if laws exist to protect them. And so this is where ultimately we, we come down to the fact that the law is a blunt instrument to deal with these cultural questions. And, and Ward is pointing out where uh, it's unfortunate we have to have a conversation around the culture of free speech. Paul, I wonder if or, uh, we can uh, start with you. What What is the culture of free speech in New Zealand historically? Have, have we actually come from a place which had free speech culturally and it's changed now? Or is that a misconception and it needs to be uh, brought about anew? Well, I think we've definitely had a history of strong free speech looking at the right of women to get the vote, um, the agitation for a nuclear-free zone, um, homosexual law reform, and the list goes on, Waitangi Tribunal. Um, these are all examples where free speech has played a direct role in bringing about change. doesn't matter about the quality of what you think about the change, but free speech was fundamental to that. Um, but I think we've, we've, lost, we've lost the lesson from that, and we now look to the law for guidance. We look to the law for moral advice to tell us what's right and wrong. We look to the law to govern how we speak. And when, when you work in history, you see some of the problems with this, and you don't have to look back very far. Um, you can, in fact, you can only look back five years or so to see what other jurisdictions have done with speech. And we can learn lessons from that. And some of the lessons are very simple, that you can't define hate speech in a precise legal way. And some people don't like that. They say, we know what hatred is. It's, it's rather like we know what um, offensive publications are, what pornography is, and so on. But when you get down to the specifics of so-called hate speech, you can't really define it. And if you can't define it, 
um, what is the point where you know you've crossed the line? And if you don't know the point at which you cross the line, then the best thing to do is to not say anything, just to be completely quiet, because then you're at no risk whatsoever. And that's the effect of these sorts of laws that don't have precise delineations. Um, we can see in other jurisdictions also that when it comes to punishing people for saying certain things, there is a tendency for some categories of topic to be focused on by the authorities and other categories not to be focused on. And that's perfectly plain. So then you have to say, well, what are my views? And if I'm on the wrong side of the fence, I better be quiet as well. So the law definitely has its place, but laws like hate speech laws have effects beyond what the statute actually says. It's not about protecting, it's not about safeguarding, it's not about offence, really it's about controlling speech. And if you doubt that, if you think that's just someone's opinion, that's fine, but just look at what happens in other jurisdictions where these laws are in place. And where there, in the UK, for example, the number of people who have been questioned, had the police turn up at their front doors, had their devices taken, not one or two, but thousands and thousands for statements that are still legal in this country, and the sky hasn't fallen down in this country because those sorts of statements are made. So we've got to be extraordinarily careful of this, and particularly, as I say, because no one's able to define the offence. Dr. Johnson, correct me, I believe your PhD was in uh, uh, cognitive psychology. It was. Now, now I have the foggiest idea of what that means. I know what the words mean, but what they mean together, I don't know. And perhaps It's the science of human information processing. So my PhD was in uh, how we recognise objects visually under three-dimensional rotation. And cognitive psychology also includes things like uh, psycholinguistics, so human information processing of language and... Uh, other aspects of perception and so on. So your time at the university is, is is very well placed then to help us understand why we see this change in our culture emerging. As the Free Speech Union, our primary focus is mm. not on parliaments, despite the fact that we see censorious laws emerging from there, but actually on the university because we see that as playing a key role in the development of a culture. Has that mm. been your experience there and what has been your role with the Heterodox Academy encountering that? Well, the university, uh, of course, has the task of being the nerve centre of free speech in many ways, in, in the form of academic freedom. Is the is the right and duty of academics to speak their minds on issues of import, and that is actually because uh, they have a central role in maintaining democracy, uh, and also because they're full of people who are supposedly trying to get to better understandings of the world, either through scientific means or the humanities. And an absolute key to that is free debate. And it's no accident that the greatest, in my opinion, philosopher of science of the 20th century, Karl Popper, was also a philosopher of the open society and saw very clearly the contest of ideas in each of science and politics being absolutely essential. Now, what happened in the university... Uh, is really just a reflection of what has happened across society. In, in his book, Jacob uh, coined the term uh, free speech entropy, which is the tendency for free speech to erode as a value in, in society over time. And the reason for that is because it's, it doesn't come naturally to human beings. And reading his book makes that very, very clear that uh, even the greatest champions of free speech are all too likely to turn against it the minute 
they are themselves in power or that they see some threat to their own position or values. Uh, and of course, human beings are quite hierarchical by nature. Uh, we also suffer from all sorts of cognitive biases, especially confirmation bias, which is the tendency to want to cherry pick evidence to support our already held beliefs and views. And to subject one's own cherished beliefs to the blowtorch of evidence and other people's speech is uncomfortable when there's no getting away from that. It should be. Uh, I am I, very grateful to one of my mentors, Professor Kenneth Forster. When I was a 20-year-old honours student at Monash University, very in love with my ideas, and he said, yes, yes, Michael, but your job as a scientist is to disprove those ideas. And, and because he was a disciple of Popper, and that's falsificationism, right? So that's what scientists do. We, it is not true that sci scientists prove their theories to be correct. A theory can never be unequivocally proven to be correct. Instead, we bring evidence at bear and try our very best to disprove it. To the extent that we fail, <clears throat> that theory gains more validity. So the same is true in society at large. And in a democracy, the way we get to the best ideas is by contesting them freely. And that will often be uncomfortable. Now, I think, Jonathan, you said uh, something like it's, it's a shame that we have to defend free speech or have these conversations about what it is. I actually disagree. I think it's a great thing that we do because that is the antidote to free speech ent entropy. When uh, uh, Dr. Brash, who was in the audience here, was banned from Massey University, that was a massive wake-up call for me. It's what got me involved in this, what has become obviously a movement. I, I wrote a piece for the, uh, the, one of the newspapers at that time and what I had to do in the years since then is actually go back to first principles about free speech and, and understand it properly because I'd just always taken it for granted. I grew up in the 1970s and that was a golden era for all of, uh, you know, open society in, in this country. But, you know, now we're at the position where we've got to defend it again. And we have to expect to do that from time to time. So I think it's a healthy thing. I've said too much. I'll, I'll, Just yeah. before we go uh, yeah. further along in the panel, you've invoked the name of the great Karl Popper, which uh, is a name also frequently heard amongst the censorists. Our would-be censors appeal to Popper in yes. his supposed paradox of the tolerance. paradox of tolerance. They, they have mischaracterized him badly. <laughs> so... so uh, <laughs> The, the claim of the paradox of tolerance is that if we allow those who are intolerant to dominate, they will remove tolerance entirely. Yes. And so we must be intolerant of intolerance. Yes, but it depends what you mean by... Now, Popper himself... I, I have this, a conversation with James Kirstead, my, my colleague, about this. We're, we're both very keen on Popper. And James's position is that uh, really going into the letters of, of Popper, which he has done with Brian Boyd, uh, it's very clear that Popper meant protection from violence. Uh, only uh, the words he used was fists and pistols. Uh, so that uh, actually uh, fits the then with the underlying uh, incitement to violence category that yeah, we it, claim is beyond the pale of free I, speech. I, th I think so. But my, my position is a little, little different. My, my sense is that Popper didn't really know the answer to the problem because it's a very hard problem. And it does go to this, this point that, that Orwell has made that if free speech is not held as a value, then laws won't protect it. And if it is held as a value, then laws will follow it. Uh, so the paradox of tolerance, its threat is that too many people are won over by anti-democratic or closed society ideas, and then you lose your open society. 
Now, I don't have a very com comforting answer to that because there's no formula by which we can protect it. All we can do is what we're doing now and trust and hope that we'll be able to convince enough people to protect open society. There's no guarantee here. That's my view. Mm. And I think Popper thought that too. Uh, uh, Dr. Toldry, you, you've written a fair bit uh, recently over changes that we've seen in our culture uh, over the past 18 months or 24 months really recent history in terms of the way we're engaging with each other differently and, and the potential harms that this can, be, can have. How do you think free speech plays into that as a broader cultural movement? So, um, in the context of the question, I think uh, it's important to understand that a lot of the things that are happening now need to be seen through a lens of our response to COVID globally, right, and in New Zealand. And um, I don't want to make this partisan. I guess there's no other choice. But um, if you look back at what happened during COVID, right? So the first, we were in level two. Then we went to level three within one day and then level four. At that time, two Otago uh, lawyers wrote that this represented some of the strictest assault on our civil liberties that we have seen in 70 years. Uh, our prime minister now has understanding under 55, the unilateral right to suspend parliament. This, this is generally considered a massive removal of checks and balances. MIQ has been uh, found to be unlawful. Parts of vaccine mandates have found to be unlawful. So uh, one of the things that has happened, I think, is that, uh, and again, there is a bit of commonality in viewpoints around leaders of the world that many of them built their reputation on COVID response. And when the COVID response was challenged, uh, that was considered dissenting view. And if I could say one thing that Dane raised earlier, see, uh, globalization has wrought some massive changes. And I'm a strong proponent of free markets. But as a part of globalization, we have had millions in Bangladesh rise out of poverty. But also the top 1% in rich countries have become very, very rich. But the middle has been completely hollowed out, the so-called people without college degrees. And we have seen this in the United States. And these are the people to a large extent who showed up in Wellington to protest. And we didn't have any answers to this. So the easy answer, because this was really a clash, not of cultures, but of economic interests. So the easy answer to this was to demonize the speech by saying, you know, this there bring a river of filth, when the correct response would have been to try and understand where is some of this disenchantment coming from. So... Um, and as I've written elsewhere, hate speech is, has little to do with hate, but a lot to do with speech. And typically, um, you will see that hate speech laws are brought in by administrations when they start to lose popular support. Right? Because... Yes, because, because when you don't have popular support and the dissenting voices are growing, the only way to keep that dissent down is to criminalize dissent, right? 
I think we may stand to hear that comment yet again on radio, but not from the mouth of Dr. Chaudhry. <laughs> you heard it here first. I'll stop. Paul, uh, I, I've, I've known a number of individuals who have disagreed with, uh, with government policies and said, I'm going to go to Parliament to change that law. But really, they're putting the cart before the horse and that unless culture is behind them, they won't ever get a stand, even if they did get into Parliament. Culture creates Parliament, not Parliament culture. So should we be looking to parliamentarians, to, to politicians, to provide any leadership on this if we are actually struggling to have a culture of free speech? Uh, well, uh, yes, I, I think you do uh, need to have uh, champions of uh, free speech in every uh, nook and cranny of society, including, uh, of course, in the parliament. And um, just going back to the discussion around university, I mean, look, I studied up the road in the history department in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, that was the time of my life when I felt least able to express my views. Um, so there's nothing new uh, about universities and their intolerance of different opinions uh, that was in, in the historical sort of context. Not, uh, not, not to say that I didn't uh, value my education there enormously. It was uh, brilliant in many respects. But in terms of uh, this is the way, the truth and the life, and you've got to agree with this uh, or you're beyond the pale, uh, in the context of New Zealand history was very much uh, in shape there. And I can only imagine that it's uh, much worse uh, now. And so uh, the, the, the tension, I suppose, between uh, those who um, uh, want to shut down debate and those who want to um, open up debate uh, is, is a part of the human condition and, and we've always got to keep battling it. Um, and it's on, uh, on and, you know, my simple view on, on free speech and hate speech is that you know, the best answer to or the best response to speech that you don't like is more speech. Uh, not uh, an attempt to silence uh, a silence or, or sort of uh, uh, get the police chasing after it. Now, the political tension uh, for us, of course, is that I do think we need to fight this issue publicly, and we will, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll resist the government's uh, um, goals, although you know it's far from clear exactly what they want to um, actually bring in, uh, and uh, I think they're all over the place, actually. I think the Prime Minister wants to do something, uh, but she's struggling to find a, a justice minister who can find something to do. Uh, um, uh, and so they're Third sort of times just, the charm. They're, they're, going, they're going round and around the paddock. They, they'll, they'll come up with something, but I don't imagine it will be, uh, it'll be a shadow of what they sort of want to do um, and will be a muddle. So there's, there's that. But I think the Prime Minister wants to do it uh, fundamentally because uh, if she's talking uh, next year about hate speech, it's better than talking about the cost of living crisis or uh, the fact that people still don't have houses and things like that. So it's just one of the many smoke streams uh, that they're putting up just to avoid uh, discussion about uh, more uncomfortable topics. Uh, and so for us, uh, we will fight it, but we don't want it to, it to be the number one issue because um, <laughs> uh, because we uh, um, there, there are other in, all incredible pressing issues as well. So, um, but going back to your question of culture, yeah, it's for everybody uh, to um, uh, to uh, remind uh, people uh, if you're having an argument between um, shutting down debate or opening up debate, um, if you want to live in a free society, you're better off uh, opening up debates. There was a fantastic op-ed uh, last week written uh, on the subject of National's position. Uh, who, who wrote that? Um, 
Rather premature, I think. <laughs> well, well, well that, that being said, uh, the, the national line so far has been that uh, you disagree with it fundamentally. Uh, unpacking that, it's different to say you simply disagree with it. Uh, is there a version of the hate speech laws that you think could be constructive or helpful or needed in our society? Uh, well, n- not that I can see, uh, and uh, I'd be very surprised if they can come up with anything. Uh, uh, like I say, I think they're desperately trying to uh, uh, come up with uh, some kind of formulation that uh, makes them look like they've achieved something which which won't achieve very much. And so, look, uh, we're still sort of boxing at thin air, but, uh, but I think I, c- I can't see them coming up with an argument that w- would get our support uh, simply because we... we uh, a- a- the, the prop- part of the problem is that people are rightly um, sceptical of uh, the, the Prime Minister and the government on these issues uh, because of the, you know, this is the sole source of truth uh, podium, the, the United Nations speech, that you know, uh, and, and her, her general um, inclination towards... Uh, uh, shutting down debate, and I've of course have had you know, direct experience of that over the, the, the our basic sort of democratic norms are being challenged in a way that none of us ever expected. So free speech is one issue, but I mean the, for, for the top of mind for me at the moment in the justice portfolio is is the idea of equal voting rights. Uh, you know, I never thought for a moment that I'd have to be in Parliament defending the principle of equal voting rights, but uh, the government passed a bill in Canterbury uh, which removes equal voting rights at local government. Uh, and uh, so, tr- but to actually try and have a debate about that issue. Uh, was difficult uh, because of, 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 you know, frankly, a media blackout of the topic. Uh, and so I, I wrote an article uh, to stuff to run in the Christchurch Press. Uh, they point blank refused to write uh, to publish it, but they did publish uh, the article from Naitahu saying how great it was. And, and it was shameless. Uh, and um, so that's uh, the, the context. So as well as uh, the issue about um, free speech and the debate we should have, uh, I think the real challenge for, for our country is a, sort of this um, kind of grip of, of silence uh, descending on various topics, uh, self-imposed or encouraged uh, and uh, born initially out of politeness, uh, not wanting to offend other people, uh, but being used, uh, um, I think, in quite a, a dangerous way in, in the sense that it, it, it's, it's helping undermine those basic sort of principles that we always assumed and are now uh, directly under attack. Can I, can I say one thing? Um, sorry, I'll be very quick. So uh, when the uh, hate speech law was first proposed, I wrote an article in the newsroom um, where I said that uh, we, we already have the Human Rights Act, which defines a lot of these things. And the hate speech law, or bill basically took a number of different words in the Human Rights Act and replaced that with hatred, as if hatred is very easy to uh, define. Uh, if you recall, uh, neither Chris Fafoy nor Jacinda Ardern could even explain. So uh, recently I had an interaction on Twitter which is where, you know, all our intellectual interactions <laughs> take place. And, um, of course, you know, I, I got a lot of, lot of SHIT for being an economist because, you know, you're an economist, what do you know? Don Brash knows what I'm talking about. You know, we are, we are the scum of the earth. You know, the historians and the philosophers, they know everything. So this you're guy... better than politicians. Yeah, this, this guy, this, somebody said, you know, stick to your job, you know, don't talk about things you don't know about. And I said, you know what, if this bill passes then he would be in prison for inciting hatred against economists. <laughs> because that's how broad it is. You could, you could put anyone in jail for anything. Because anything is hatred. Sorry, carry on. 
Michael, I wonder if I can pick up on that point. Yesterday when I sat down uh, with, with Jacob, with the Vice-Chancellor of uh, Auckland University, I, I made a comment of the pathologizing of speech, this fixation that seems to be emerging about the danger, almost as if it were a disease, the power of speech. And, and on one level, I find it difficult as someone who believes in free speech when free speech advocates minimize the role of speech. The reason I do what I do is because I believe speech can have incredible power. That being said, I don't view it as a disease. I don't pathologize it in that way. How have we come into this position as a culture where we have begun to see words as weapons or as a disease or something that infects the mind so easily? So ideas change society in various ways. And I said before that I don't think free speech comes naturally to us. And one of the reasons for that is our kind of religious drive. Now, um, I think there are perfectly reasonable and tolerant ways of being religious. But one of the great boons of science is that in science there are no sacred ideas. <clears throat> in other words, you can put up anything for debate to be tested with evidence. Now, science itself has had to fight for that right over centuries. Galileo was threatened with the Inquisition. Many others, you know, were also... So I think the idea that ideas and thoughts can be poisonous, can be toxic, uh, can be pathological, as, as you put it, comes very naturally to human beings. In other words, it's heresy. Mm. It's speaking against an orthodoxy that is held sacred by someone with power. And in order to protect that, well, they'll do anything, including burning people at the stake, torturing them, putting them in gulags, you, you name it. We've seen it all in history, and Jacob's book surveys a lot of that. So I think it's just the playing out of that all-too-human tendency to defend what is held to be ideologically sacred. Mm. And especially in an age in the West where traditional religions have waned, the, I think it was C.S. Lewis, could be someone else, who said that we have a God-shaped hole in our our hearts or something like that, it will be filled with something. Whether it's, you know, a, a sort of apocalyptic vision of what will happen if we don't stop carbon emissions in 10 years, it, it, whether it's, you know, the idea that uh, we have to have radical equality across all of society. These, the, these ideas are not necessarily bad in themselves. They might be correct. They might not. But whether they are or not, if we hold them to be sacred, we're unable to really test them properly and get to something that's more true than what we think now. And that is the ongoing quest of science, and it ought to be the ongoing quest of democracy as well. But again, it doesn't come naturally, and it needs to be maintained by people who understand those values and to try to promulgate them as widely as we can. Just before we uh, open the floor up for the Q&A, uh, Paul, I'll come back to you. We get accused of uh, there being an irony of, of speaking about a uh, an erosion or recession of free speech, as, as Jacob and Shangama puts it, uh, where, you know, Dr. Chowdhury, you're talking about free speech on newsroom, you know, so there's an element of you, we do still have free speech. Uh, how would you respond to these people who go don't be stupid. You're using your free speech to talk about free speech. You obviously have free speech. There's no problem. Go away. What would your response be there? That you're missing the point. If, if you use that argument, that's, that's sidetracking the issue. I suspect most people here right now, if I ask them, I won't 
don't want to actually say it, but just imagine, uh, do you have particular thoughts that you know you can't express publicly? Yeah, well, there you go. Um, and if you go back 50 or 60 years, perhaps you could express them a bit more. Hopefully they're good thoughts. There are some thoughts you ought not to have and ought never to be expressed because they are horrendous. But the fact is that, that we all know. We're all self-censoring all the time and we're getting better at it. And the other side of that, of course, is it doesn't get rid of the view. So for all the effort that goes into censorship and all the effort that goes into suppressing speech, all we do is become more sophisticated at concealing our views or expressing them in a way that gets through the net. And so the idea that um, we have this sort of freedom and we're debating something that already exists simply isn't true. The famous American journalist uh, Jonathan Rauch famously says that the problem with hate speech is the hate, not the speech. And to try and deal with it through legislation is like trying to deal with climate change by going around and breaking all the thermometers. And it pushes it out of the notice of others, but it doesn't actually deal with it at all. With that, we'll open up the floor to uh, our, our wonderful audience here uh, who have many thoughts, and we can express them, hopefully. Uh, let's start over in this corner here. My question is about the role of civil society and organic relationships in um, preserving and promoting free speech. And I, I had in mind um, Paul Moon to perhaps answer this question, but I think actually everyone on the panel could contribute a useful thought there. So the question is really about whether, well, what role does civil society and organic relationships have in promoting and protecting free speech? How can we as individuals best go about contributing to that effort? Well, that, that raises questions about what society is, and, and Margaret Thatcher famously said there's no such thing as society. We're all just self-interested atoms bumping into each other. Um, I like that idea. But um, we, we do have responsibilities that come with speech, obviously, um, and I think a lot of it takes place in the home. A lot of it is cultural, and Juliet made a very good point about um, the, the heavy culture of, of disputation in Jewish communities throughout the world. And if you see the, the the fruit of that, in terms of the great philosophers that have come out of that tradition, the great sociologists and, and historians, it's precisely because they have that culture of challenging. And we need a society that accepts that. And I think one of the problems perhaps we have is we're all just a bit too polite. And if we think, well, I don't, I don't really like what they've said, but I'm not going to make a scene about it. Um, I'll just be quiet and, you know... I'll be home shortly, so it doesn't matter. And we go through that process, and and the speech gets away. Yeah. I, I think we need to have a society in which we are able to contest ideas, and that requires resilience and robustness. As Paul says, we're probably too polite. We're probably too afraid to offend. Um, not that we should set out to offend, but sometimes it's inevitable that people will find our truly held ideas offensive. Now, one of the problems that we face at the moment especially with our young people, is a, a lack of resilience. And many of you may have read Jonathan Haidt's book with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind, and they're surveying what has happened in the last decade or so where there's been an explosion in anxiety and depression in young people and the reasons for that. And they trace it to two sources. One is uh, a kind of over-anxious parenting whereby... Children aren't exposed to enough risk when they're growing up. 
and they they use a term I think that was coined by Nicholas Taleb, uh, anti-fragility, which is the phenomenon that human beings actually get more resilient when put under a moderate degree of stress and challenge, not too much, but a moderate degree. But without enough, we grow up weak and unable to deal with ideas that we find offensive. So I think part of the answer to your question is might lie in how we raise young people to be more resilient, uh, to be able to hear ideas. And then I, I have been thinking as a somebody with a strong interest in education that it wouldn't hurt to put into the school cu- curriculum uh, something about how we contest ideas. You know, we, we when we think of civics education, we might think of young people learning about how parliament works and the separation of powers – well, they probably should learn those things. But to actually be active democratic citizens, they need to know how to contest ideas in good faith uh, and to hear things that make them uncomfortable without getting angry or upset with the person who's saying them, but rather, you know, to just contest those ideas. And so I think there is a, a huge issue with young people, not all of them, of course, there, but we do need to look to them as the future and as the future of democracy and free speech and to give them the equipment psychologically that will allow them to uh, participate in actively in democracy. First of all, can I just say this is an incredibly uh, valuable uh, forum and I really, really appreciate the views that are being expressed. I just heard, heard, heard Paul... Uh, Goldsmith talk about the grip of silence. I've heard talk from the esteemed guests around the need for us to have more chutzpah when it comes to expressing our views. I just want to share with you very briefly that I was the subject of a a pile-on on social media about a year ago for making some comments which were perceived to be anti-transgender. And I know that were I not some cynical old uh, man like I am, that I would have probably been tempted to commit suicide. And so this idea that um, freedom of speech is about the congenial exchange of ideas is not always the case. There are many people now who are detransitioning from having undergone surgery to change their uh, biological sex, who are going public about it, and who are being encouraged by trans activists and many members of the gay community or the rainbow community, whatever you want to call this thing, to commit suicide. So it's true that we need more chutzpah when it comes to expressing views, but if I were to publicly express my views now on the transgender issue, for example, the reality is I would likely lose my job and my income. So we are talking about you know, some, some um, really important things about the exchange of ideas, but please do not assume that everyone does this with good intent, because even within those communities like gay people who and I am gay in case that's not obvious, um, have expressed their, their desire for freedom for decades, having achieved that freedom, have now become in many cases the biggest tyrants and imposers of one view that you could possibly imagine. And Karen said the same thing about Maori. This assumption, you are Maori and therefore you will have this set of views. The assumption is that now if you are gay, you will have a certain set of views to the extent that the gay newspaper here said recently, Peter Thiel, one of the wealthier men in the world with a base in Queenstown, incidentally, an extraordinary man, could not possibly be gay, although he is, because he backed Donald Trump. 
And that's the kind of, of conformism that we've got going on. So fantastic venue, thrilled to be here. Please don't make the assumption that everyone is a rational actor. There's some nasty people out there. Sorry, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in for a minute there. Um. Hello. Sorry, let's can I just, just hold on one second. Can, can I just say one Dr. thing? Uh, in response to, uh, to this comment, um, I think we have known for a long time the difference between dangerous speech and hate and, and unpopular speech. So we have known that shouting fire in a crowded theater is not protected speech. I don't think most of the laws that people are protect our people are promoting will make any changes to that. The laws that deal with violent or dangerous speech exist in our books. We don't, I don't think we need more laws. Are there disgusting a-holes out there? Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to throw all of them in prison. Because the line will start to get blurred very, very quickly. Dr. Chaudhry, I wonder if I can just draw you on that a little bit more. What do you think it says of our society that we are proposing exactly what you say there to put people in prison for three years? You know, if you walk down Crean Street and slap someone in the face, you get down on common assault. You insult them for a group that they're a part of and you go to prison for three years. What does this tell us of the way we're perceiving crime and criminality in our nation? I don't know the answer to that. Um, clearly, clearly, we are uh, responding to some of these things. And, and um, uh, your point about anti-fragility is, is very well taken. That for uh, whatever reason, we are hell-bent on demonizing unpopular views. Um, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a good answer. Uh, but I do... Because I'm a, you know, I'm an, I'm an academic, so I like to talk. So I will, I will say, I will say something about, you know, creating this culture of, I don't know how to do it. No one knows. Uh, but I want to tell you the story. Uh, the story goes that um, William Howard Taft, who was uh, president of the United States. So one day, this is obviously probably a makeup, made up story. Uh, one day at dinner table, William Howard Taft's son said, you're a bloody idiot. And uh, William Ta Howard Taft's wife was very upset. And, um, and Taft said, no, no, that's okay. If he said that as a son to his father, he should be punished. But if he said that as a citizen to the United States president, that's his democratic right. <laughs> so I think one thing that we must do is we must be William Howard Tafts in our own homes with our children. And we need to get them, as, as you just pointed out, to get these children to start asking some questions in their schools, in their colleges. And we have to get, I tell my students that, look, um, I need each and every one of you to be a devil's advocate. So whenever I say something, you need to say, you know, but what about? You know, just say something so that, you know, I, you know, any. Yeah. Just a couple of, uh, points to make. Number one, I find that, for example, um, generally in Anglo-Western culture, uh, people want to be polite generally, and uh, even Piers Morgan, I think you know, makes very strong statements, and then he apologizes. You see, I think there's a sign of weakness. If you believe you're right, you stand by your opinion, number one. Where I come from, for example, uh, if, I, if we say something, 
Uh, there's an example I can give you. The view is obnoxious because everyone was talking about black, uh, black lives matter and some said all lives matter. There's one lady who was very angry. Her name is Priyam Bodha Gopal, Cambridge lecturer, you know, Cambridge professor. She was doing something obnoxious because she was treated badly by the sub-discrimination against her. It's the Indian. She said, she said, white lives don't matter. There was a very obnoxious remark, you know, she made. But she was very angry at that time and she didn't apologize. And then they asked her to apologize. She lost her job just because she said that. He said, I say it again, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, this white lives don't matter. It's another case of Trump. Rashida Talib, you may have heard, a member of parliament, was, uh, was very angry what Trump was doing to the ethnic groups. She said, we must get rid of that MF Trump, you know. And, and the people who asked to apologize said, no, he's an MF, so why should I apologize? So, so you stand, look at Pauline Hansen. Nobody shot her. Uh, what about Peter McCullough? The, 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 he spoke about the dangers of the vaccine. So a lot of great speakers have, uh, Gandhi also, whatever it is, but he went to jail. But in modern times, there are a lot of people who have spoken out uh, openly uh, who have not gone to jail. So you must stick by your convictions, number one. Okay. Second thing is that um, I feel that uh, our existing laws, as Professor Chowdhury said, is good enough. You know, And that's, that's a proof to us why we need a harsher law. Anyway, if you really are upset, if somebody is defaming your character, libel laws are there. You know, libel laws are there. Anyway, you can sue on libel. There's existing laws. There's no need for change of law. And finally, what is all this hula-bulu is all about is they want to create equality of outcome. You can never do that. Equality of opportunity. You must give equality of opportunity. Equality of outcome by having quotas. 50% of the U.S., 50% army for men, 50% for women can't work out. Because men and women are different. You see, they will not all, half of women want to go to the army. So we want equality of opportunity. If you want to go, you go. But you can't force, uh, what do you call it, uh, a, a quota system, something like that. Yeah, three points I got to see. Thank you. I could just jump in on the on the point you made around uh, a prison term for for, for hate speech. And it just uh, uh, it does seem a little bit bizarre. So you know we'd be in Parliament if if this comes through debating uh, three years imprisonment for speech. Uh, and you know only last month it was confirmed that. You know, it's possible in this country for somebody to rape four women and get nine months home detention. Uh, and, um, it's possible, very, quite likely to, to bash somebody severely so that they're, you know, uh, impaired, um, and injured for, for the rest of their lives and get home detention and not go to prison. So the, 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 um, the kind of nonsensical nature of, of this is part of it. And, and I suppose one of the, my, my broader critiques against the, the whole sort of hate speech sort of legislative push is one on the issue itself, but secondly on on what it says about um, a government's priorities when it comes to justice generally. Uh, at a time when you've got you know serious crime rising, when you've got you know, youth crime out of control, and when you've got um, long delays for justice in a court system, putting lives on hold, that should be the focus of a justice minister and a justice policy, uh, rather than uh, dreaming up new ways to um, uh, get police to chase people around for what they say. And so it, it, it's a question of priorities as well as um, the, the, the actual nature of the, the legislation that they're considering. Mark. Okay. Um, now, I may be out of touch, but this is a question for Paul, but is the Harmful, Harmful Digital Communications Act still in play? Yeah. And it's a follow-up question, how do you see that in relationship to the current versions of hate speech laws? Well, uh, uh, um, uh, 
uh, well, the, the, there's the part of the discussion in the Royal Commission um, uh, that came up was was mentioning uh, how the the current incitement laws didn't include uh, digital platforms, and so they could be wanting to extend that into into that realm. Uh, the um, so uh, Parliament generally is trying to come up with ways to sort of deal with changes in technologies and how people uh, uh, transmit things. And uh, I, I I wasn't around and particularly close to those original debates, so I'm not quite sure. Are you trying to make a point that we shouldn't have one and not the other, or? or? When I, when I read about it at the Times a few years ago, obviously, that if, you, if someone felt insulted, you could, they could be prosecuted, whatever the penalty was, yep. under the Harmful Digital Communications Act. Now, in a substantive way, not detailed, but the actual fundamental way, how is that actually any different to what you're railing against now, well, having well, introduced something similar in the past? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, oh. well you don't have to answer that then. There's no defence. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah. Well. But doesn't this just, just because there's one bad book on the statute book does, uh, uh, bill doesn't mean we can't pass another one? That's the point. Uh, and this, of course, is much broader in its uh, in its uh, extent. But doesn't this illustrate the point, Mark, being that over the past seven years we haven't seen uh, gross prosecutions under the Harmful Digital Communications Act, although it has got quite significant uh, provisions or anti-speech provisions there. It speaks to the power of the culture. New Zealand has very similar hate speech laws to those in the United Kingdom, yet in the United Kingdom, in, in England and Wales, they are prosecuted in different ways to the way they are here, because we have a culture that defends it. Well, sorry, I'm just giving an opinion now, but... It- the fact that we uh, haven't got there yet doesn't mean that we won't get there uh, soon. And it, I just wanted to make the point that you know, I don't want to veer off away from free speech, but we have a book, uh, a law that was introduced by your party, and now you are saying the, the current government's version of the same thing is terrible. Would, wouldn't it be nice for someone to acknowledge, well, we actually got it wrong then, let's dump them both. Well, that's a very fair point. And, and, and if you're making the point that government uh, uh, parties aren't always consistent and governments don't always uh, act consistently, well, that's a pretty obvious point, and I, 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 I plead guilty. Uh, no question to that. Uh, and <laughs> uh, you're quite right. And, and look, I mean, it is one of the great uh, challenges. Um, uh, you know, I had three years as a minister in, in a different space, and, you know, literally every week somebody will come with you with a problem that can be solved uh, by government legislating uh, to, to stop it. Uh, and, uh, and and why my guiding political philosophy is, you know, regulatory restraint uh, in the sense that the, that the first instinct should be, well, hang on, do we actually need to do this or not? And the, and in most cases, the answer should be no. Uh, um, but uh, what happens and, you know, what, what, what often happens in, in a in a situation like New Zealand is something very bad happens. You have a Royal Commission uh, and the inclination is that something has to change <laughs> uh, as a result. Uh, and then you, and, and it sort of, it becomes a self-fulfilling process and these things sort of just uh, pile upon each other. And, and it does take quite a lot of uh, discipline uh, by a government to resist uh, that urge. And, um, you know, we certainly haven't been perfect in the past and, and it's, uh, it's a constant battle that you have to have. I'm glad that we've gotten to this point in the afternoon where we still have questions in the room. We probably only have time for two more, uh, so we might or three: jo- Jordan, and then Juliet, and then over here. If we can keep them brief. Um, I, I put my hand up because I was 
worried that um, while I'm delighted you've joined us, Paul, you might be having too good a time. But the, 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 the question before me may have um, taken care of that. There was an excellent piece uh, in the Herald uh, early this week by a Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union where he asked where Mr Luxon is on the hate speech issue given that he hasn't been particularly strong in his opposition and the majority of New Zealanders are on our side on this issue. So I saw you taking some notes earlier. My question is, is um, will you be sending those to the leader? Uh, and will uh, and is he likely to make a firmer commitment? My second question is, a few days later, there was another excellent piece in the Herald, a piece by Dr. Michael Johnston, uh, that pointing out the terrible statistics of uh, views of our university students' uh, ability to speak freely on campus. Uh, as you're the ex-tertiary education minister, my second question is, what will National do, if anything, to promote uh, the free speech of students uh, on campus? Well, I mean, as I said in my original point, that, that my experience 30 years ago in university was the time in my life where I felt least able to express my views. So it's not a new uh, issue, and it's a, a fundamental, a much deeper, broader issue that uh, the kind of the centre right has kind of given up on the universities, uh, you know, 40 years ago. And, uh, and uh, well, good, I'm glad to hear it. But uh, we've, uh, that the long march of the institutions has been dominated by one side of politics. Uh, and it's got worse, though. It, it definitely, definitely getting worse. Uh, and, uh, yep, you're quite right. I think we need to f fight it quite vigorously. Uh, and um, one of my great regrets of being 10 months of uh, Minister of Tertiary Education, the great uh, um, uh, hurly-burly of politics, is you just get your head around a topic and then you get thrown out or changed uh, into something else. And that's just one of the challenges of life. But uh, it, that... that, that um, uh, I think that the things that universities are lacking are, is a commitment to diversity of thought, uh, um, that there's enormous commitment to diversity of everything else aside from, um, you know, um, political opinions and, and, and general diversity in, in uh, approach. And so it's possible to have government departments where every single person there has a, has a particular sort of attitude in, in um, thinking uh, about a set of issues, and there isn't that diversity there. And so I, I think it should be incumbent upon uh, the leadership of universities to have that as uh, uppermost in their mind, that they, they run an institution where there is genuine diversity of thought. Can I, can I just chime in on that? And there's a very interesting pattern came out of that those data that uh, we were writing about. Um, so you might think, or well, actually, we asked students two questions. First of all, how free <clears throat> do you feel to express your views on, say, section, sex and gender, on politics, uh, on race, and so on? And then, which other groups of students do you think might feel inhibited in speaking about these things? And interestingly, they tended to get it exactly wrong. So people thought, for example, that uh, gay people would be more disinclined to speak about sexuality. Actually, straight people are. They thought that, you know, women might be more reticent to speak about sex. and Well, men are. Uh, so actually, all of the groups that are held to be privileged are actually the ones who expressed feeling least comfortable to express views on the dimension relating to their purported privilege. So I found that a very interesting result. 
Um, and it does speak to a certain ideological capture in our universities, as, as Paul is saying. And I think that's getting, I think there are data that show that it's getting more and more so over time. Uh, they're probably American data rather than New Zealand data, but the, the, the proportion of, uh, academics who lean right is getting smaller and smaller. Juliet, can we have your question in one breath? Uh, maybe, I, no, well, well, there, I'll, there I'll, it was. No. I'll give it a go. Um, I'm being a bit cheeky um, mentioning this because I should have said it before. There's this great little book on ty- ty- tyranny by Timothy Snyder, who's a historian and public intellectual, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. I was thinking about this because you were talking about Jonathan Haidt, Michael, and that idea of safetyism. And I think that's a really big thing from my understanding, that's happening in the universities. And he's talking about this, he says, uh, being trained to surrender freedom in the name of safety and that we should be on our guard when that happens. And this thing really stood out to me. The feeling of submission to authority might be comforting, but it is not the same thing as actual safety. And I think that whole idea of submission to authority, that seems to be happening so much from what I understand in the universities, you know, appealing to administrators to, uh, you know, to, to stop discomforting ideas or challenging ideas or whatever being heard, you know, de-platforming particular speakers or whatever. I don't know if you've got any comment on that, well, but again, sorry, it's, it's more than one. It's human tendency. That yeah. Because we exist in hierarchies, we always have to look to somebody to protect us against a perceived threat. And, you know, in, in a democracy, we look to our political leaders, uh, and then you're right. So something is a perceived threat. What are the lawmakers going to do about it? Bring in some legislation to protect us from it. And really, the antidote to all of this is radical personal responsibility. And that is a hard one thing. Most most people don't really get there through their whole lives. And hopefully enough of us get there enough to protect the values that make us free. Because if they don't, then we'll lose those values. And it's as simple as that. And there is no grand formula for saving the show. We've just got to all do the work as best we can. Quick question about the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Uh, generally, what should be done with it? Um, could, say, $10 million be found to send it to the Free Speech Union <laughs> to help it create a culture of free speech in New Zealand? <laughs> Professor Moon, do you want to um, give any comments on that? I do, but I'd like to hear from a politician about it. <laughs> Well, my understanding is the fund is running out, isn't it? Uh, and uh, and it's it's going to be a part of history, uh, is my understanding. And if the government try to revive it in some way, then uh, we'll have plenty to say about it. It's just one of the uh, many dodgy things that have been done in the name of COVID uh, or under the under the cupboard of COVID uh, uh, that have been quite a disgrace. And uh, look, I think, to be honest, to be, to be honest, uh, uh, my sense is that quite a lot of Big chunks of the media um, recognise the damage that it's been that is, that it has caused uh, reputationally. Um, it's been a major kind of uh, um, fillip to the sort of um, to the view that the the media can't be trusted, which has been quite corrosive actually. So it, it it's not the first, nor will it be the last time that um, government actions have achieved the opposite of what they set out to achieve. Um. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Paul Goldsmith, Dr. Ananish Chaudhry, Dr. Michael Johnson, and Professor Paul Moon, put it together for them. Thank you.
Gentlemen, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anō.